All right. So we have covered, if you don't count the pre-church uh, discussions that we did, uh, we, have, we have covered 1,900 years, pretty much, of church history. And tonight we enter the 20th century. Uh, and like we did last time where we finished up our discussion on orthodoxy, uh, Russian and Eastern Orthodoxy, we took it all the way up to its present day. Uh, that's what we're going to do tonight with Roman Catholicism. We are going to cover tonight Roman Catholicism from World War I, 1914, to the present day. Uh, and then we will spend the last three to four lectures uh, closing out uh, Protestantism with our, our vision on kind of what's happened in Protestantism over the last century, uh, looking at global Christianity, what's happening around the world, and then we will finish with a final lecture on what do we have to look forward to? What is the 21st century going to continue bringing in for the church? What are some things we should be expecting um, and preparing our hearts for as major shifts are happening around us currently? So uh, before we get into our discussion on um, Roman Catholicism, just want to give a little bit of context for what the 20th century was. And many of you are now familiar with this century, and so a lot of this is going to become much more familiar. A lot of these names are going to be very familiar. Um, and so we, we're starting to get in a little bit more comfortable ground. This is about where the vast majority of people's church history extends to. Uh, is the beginning of the 20th century and things happened there. The, the 20th century was a period of unbelievable global changes. Uh, religiously, culturally, uh, socially, politically. It, World War I launched the beginning of total, impersonal, mechanized warfare. Prior to this, you lined up across the field and you fought hand in hand. You might have had muskets, you might have had rifles, but you saw the person you were shooting. Oftentimes you would barely get off enough volleys before you were getting stabbed with a bayonet, and it was just all-out chaos. But now we're fighting in trenches. We're fighting in tanks. We're fighting using gas and chemical warfare. We're using bombs and aircraft. This is totally impersonal, and it's mechanized. And what happens when things get impersonal? They become far more deadly. Because you aren't thinking about the men you're killing. And so this is becoming a, 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 a global war like no one saw and expected. Especially in light of the liberalism which had risen up at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. Um, and, and had laid out this idea that uh, this, this liberal social gospel was going to usher in a period of peace. It was going to bring world peace and World War I absolutely shattered that ideal, that science and technology would usher in peace, rather it ushered in some of the deadliest wars in human history. It also ushered in a period that led to the rise of some of the most totalitarian and murderous regimes in history. Stalin, Mao, Hitler, um, Franco in, um, in Spain, Castro in Cuba. These are some of the most totalitarian regimes in history, um, some of them which were ended with World War uh, II, uh, many of them, however, were actually given new ground and new leases because of the, the other threats that they did not have to worry about anymore. It was a period that saw constant warfare in the church between liberalism and Christian orthodoxy, a fight that is still being waged very much today. Um, 
It was a period of globalization for the church. In the 19th, or excuse me, the 20th century, we saw the church now extending into the world. And what used to be the centers of Christianity are slowly becoming not the centers, but becoming the fringes. Europe and North America, what once used to be the bastions of Christianity, are now becoming the fringes of Christianity, where the major fronts of Christianity now are in places like Asia and Africa and India, these places where the church is really growing in huge numbers now, whereas we are becoming more and more a secular nation. And so now we're having primarily, especially Asiatic countries, who are sending missionaries to America now because of how bad things are going. And so the globalization of the church, and with the globalization of the church, it was a period of growing ecumenism. As the world, primarily the Western world, grew more and more secular, it caused the three branches of Christianity to actually get closer and closer. Sometimes positively, and sometimes very negatively. Uh, And we'll talk about the ecumenical movement a little bit tonight and a little bit later on as well. It was a period that saw the rise of vast new radical theologies. Feminist liberalism. Um, black liberal theology. Um, we're going to talk about all of these radical forms of theology that come out of the 40s, 50s, and especially the 60s and 70s. Everything weird came out of the 60s and 70s. So we'll talk about a lot of that stuff. But one of the greatest new theologies and this vast wave that was launched in the 20th century that continues to affect today was the rise of charismaticism. Uh, the charismatic movement took over in the 20th century as a really predominant movement. And the reason that it became such a vital movement was the way that it was so influential in places like South America and Africa that were rooted already in these kind of occultic, spiritual, tribalistic practices. And a lot of these charismatic uh, views really just appealed in to those already previously held beliefs. We'll look at that at a later period. It was a period that saw a boom in the megachurch. Between the the 50s and uh, the turn of the 21st century, the megachurch begins to take off. Megachurches with their celebrity pastors. And so everybody knows their famous pastor. You start hearing, everybody has their favorite pastor on the radio, whether it was Charles Stanley or Adrian Rogers or anything like that. I mean, these become the big names that we all start following and things like that. We listen to J. Vernon McGee and his Through the Bible series. So all of these big names, large megachurches start popping up and these kind of big personality groups uh, are are beginning to be designated. Uh, The church had never faced a century like the 20th century, primarily because it faced challenges at a rate of speed that it had never had to face before. Never before had information and things kept coming out and hit the church as fast as they did with the rise especially of the technological revolution in the end of the 20th century. And we as the 21st century are experiencing that even more rapidly than the 20th century did. How fast things progress and change now with how quick information is put out. And so the church is now dealing with a situation that it has never had to deal with before, and that is that literally within one day, what used to be considered high leaders in evangelicalism are now considered liberal uh, in the doghouse because of tweets they put out. I mean, and so we are having huge shifts and changes in thinking, and we'll talk about that as we look towards the future in the past. But 
as we uh, go into the 20th century uh, and into the 21st century today, we're going to wrap up primarily focusing on what happened with Roman Catholicism uh, in this 20th century and where does it stand today as we wrap up our discussion on Roman Catholicism. I want to begin by talking about the papal leadership in World War I and II. We're going to begin and focus our attention there beginning in 1914, as that was where we left off last time. Pope Benedict XV was made Pope just as World War I had broken out. The previous Pope died literally just about a month after the, uh, the uh, uh, Austrian uh, uh, Archduke uh, Francis Ferdinand had been assassinated, which led to the uh, World War I being begun there, and this caused a huge thing, and a lot of people weren't sure what was the papacy to do in a war that was now global. It wasn't just simple nations against nations. This was an entire war where the, it seemed as if the entire world, at least all of the major powers, were caught up in. And so what would the Pope's stance be when a global war was taking place? And Benedict's practice was one that was very common at this point among the papacy, and that was what was called papal neutrality. In other words, just keep your nose out of it. Um, don't go for or against, because you don't know who the winner's going to be. And so you don't want to make that person any long term. And so the best thing to do is stay neutral, so that at least if those individuals win, they will still allow you into their lands to provide assistance and to allow the church to remain in those portions of the land. Now, Benedict, however, though he was not going to speak necessarily politically on any matters, one of the things that he did choose to do, which was, was a good thing, was he focused all of his time and all of his efforts on humanitarian work, primarily for uh, war-torn refugees, prisoners of war, and things like that. He wanted to make sure that those who were affected by war were cared for, while simultaneously not speaking necessarily for or against anyone in the war. What is interesting, though, is when the war ended in World War I, which ended with the Treaty of Versailles, Benedict actually said something that was almost prophetic in a way. When the Treaty of Versailles was published, he, he was gravely concerned about the harsh economic penalties that had been placed on Germany. If you know anything about World War I and the Treaty of Versailles, Germany just got absolutely crushed by the League of Nations. They were not going to allow them uh, pretty much to get away with anything, and it absolutely bankrupt. It crushed Germany. And what Benedict saw this was he said, these kind of harsh economic penalties, you basically turning this nation into a third world country, turning it into poverty, which is exactly what happened in Germany, is going to create such an anger and a frustration in Germany that if they ever again regain any semblance of power, they will once again try to destroy everyone who brought these hardships against them. And that's exactly what happened, and that was the fuel Hitler used in order to bring up an already angry German population to rise up and to follow him in, in spite of anything that he brought extra with it. He was going to regain their power, and that's all they cared about when they had suffered so much economic hardship. And Benedict was one of the few that saw that as what was probably going to happen because of the major issues uh, that had been uh, inflicted on Germany in the Treaty of Versailles. His successor was Pius XI. Now, 
Pius was much more an able successor than Benedict was. He was uh, very much a brilliant scholar and he was a, a brilliant administrator where as Benedict was much more kind of a, of a Francis of Assisi type. He was more focused on doing um, care, charity work, and things like that. Pius was much more a thinker, much more an administrator in trying to shape the overall thinking of the church. Uh, Pius saw the survival of the Catholic Church by looking beyond Europe. He saw what was happening in Europe and he saw the growing decline of religion. Uh, He saw the growing rise of atheism, secularism, and he thought the only way to really preserve the future of Catholicism is to now start looking elsewhere. Start focusing on Asia. Start focusing on Africa. Start focusing more on South America. If we can spread our roots wide, we can ensure the long-term success of the church in spite of what might happen here in Europe. And this was absolutely um, vital to Catholicism's continual success. Um, the primary area that they did focus on during the uh, Pius' tenure was uh, China. And it was under him that the first Chinese Catholic bishops were actually consecrated. Um, it, it, this was marked by remarkable results, and really no one expected it, but it showed a bit of his brilliance and his administration to think outside of Europe, uh, seeing that there was probably not going to be much of a change in the trajectory of where things were going, primarily because of the overwhelming secularization of the European university system. And so he said, the best thing to do is to be missional. And I think in many ways, there's just a lot of smart uh, things that we should learn from that. One of the greatest ways to combat secularism is missionary work. And I think Jesus knew that for anybody. That's why he gave us that commission. Uh, That's how you combat secularism, is you do missionary work. Um, But I would say don't forsake where you currently are uh, in that process. Um, Compared to many of the popes before him, uh, Pius actually cared very little about kind of the the pomp and the glamour. You know, it was actually very hard to find, you know, usually I try to find them with all of their, you know, weird costumes and big fancy hats and stuff like that. But Pius is actually hard to find those because he really did not like wearing that. He, He did not like the pomp and things like that, which many of his preceding popes did, um, but he was more about pi- uh, a piety and devotion. And one of the things he cared most about was the rise of laity actually becoming more involved in their faith. One of those that really admired the Catholic uh, uh, pope was a woman by the name of Therese Leswu, of, uh, and she was this kind of pietist woman who spent her time going to priests um, and bishops and doing like uh, just praying over them, um, bringing them food, um, and caring for them. Um, she spent her time actually as a lay woman caring for her priest. And this was a central idea that Pius wanted to establish for Catholic laity. Um, and in order to do that, um, Pius actually canonized her, which that means he made her a saint. He made St. Therese a, a, a saint of the Catholic Church in 1924. And the primary reason that he did this was because he was trying to build a Catholic Church that was so rare in any other time in history. A Catholic Church that actually had an active laity, rather than a passive laity who just came, sat, 
watched the liturgy be performed, and then got up and left, and that was your Catholicism. He wanted the Catholic Church to actually be involved, the laity to be active, out doing service, out doing ministry, while simultaneously submitting to the church's hierarchy. And this principle can be seen in his first encyclical where he laid out the goals and rules of the most important lay organization of the Catholic Church in the first half of the 20th century. This organization was known as Catholic Action. And the idea was to get Catholics in action. Now, not to be confused with Catholic Answers, which would come a little bit later on, which is kind of an apologetic form of Catholicism, uh, but nevertheless, this was the idea, an active Catholic laity. Um, that was Pius's big vision for the church. Pius was also very concerned with communism, but, prim- but primarily not because of its politics, but rather because of communistic, uh, communist overwhelmingly avowed atheistic stance. One of the things that is always common to communism is atheism, because communism requires total allegiance to the state. And what greater thing to remove your allegiance to the state than your religion? When you say Jesus is Lord, that is a threat to a communist dictator who wants to be called Lord. It's why they have pictures of Xi Jinping in Chinese state churches. Because they don't want you worshiping Jesus. He is the supreme dictator. And when you say Jesus is Lord, and this is something we in Christians, as Christians today totally get... But to say Jesus is Lord in the New Testament was the most political statement in history. And we think about this reality where they say that there is no other name under heaven by where men can be saved than Jesus. To say Jesus is Lord was preaching politics. Because during that time, who was Lord? Caesar. You have to say Kaiser Koryos. And for the Christians to say, no, Yesu Koryos, Jesus is Lord. This was the most political statement you could ever make. And that has been a common theme throughout history and has always challenged communist dictators. And it's why they've always tried to push out Christianity really more than any other religion, but especially Christianity. And because of this avowed hatred of communism, it actually caused Pius to buddy up with some other groups that may have not been so well received. One of those was fascism. Uh, In many ways, he did not show the same disdain for fascism that he did for communism. Um, And primarily because fascism, at least in its political sense, upheld many of the principles that had been written in the syllabus of errors by the Catholic Church um, just a few uh, years earlier. Because fascism maintains a hierarchical standing in society. It believes in hierarchies in society. Fascism argues for a strong sense of authority. It argues for a state's dedication to enforcing its moral standards. Now, that's the key, enforcing its moral standards. Um, That's the great issue of fascism, is it doesn't get to say who defines the morals. It's the government gets to define the morals, and that's the danger of fascism. And so, but this in many ways was a positive thing. Now, much of this appeal to fascism was not because... He was looking over to the Nazi regime and thought, man, those guys seem to have it together. It's important to remember that at this point, who is the leader of Italy? Benito Mussolini. And in the late 20s, Mussolini is a very good leader. Things are going very well in Italy. Italy has a very strong economy. It has a very strong society. People are proud to be Italian. 
it seemed things were very good. So this was really the idea that he saw with fascism. And so, and the overwhelming majority of Italy was Catholic. And so it had a pro-Catholic fascist government. So you can imagine why Pius saw fascism as a, hey, it's a pretty good deal. You know, it enforces Catholic moral standards. That's a, a good thing. Um, and nevertheless, ultimately, um, 1929 afterwards, especially as Hitler um, began to grow in power, the ideas of fascism greatly and quickly changed, especially as Mussolini changed with the influence and the power that came with him following Hitler. Nevertheless, uh, important to note for Pius, the moment that the Nazi regime did begin to take off and it kind of became clear of where they were going, where Hitler was leading them, he did become um, a, a very outspoken critic of Nazism. But he did later his stance on fascism once again, uh, and especially the harsh fascism, when Franco, who was a fascist dictator over Spain, took leadership there, and he pretty much turned a blind eye. Pius turned a blind eye to the harsh fascism that was happening in Spain. Um, and so, inconsistent, but common to, to men. Uh, interestingly, many Catholics in Germany during uh, the period of World War II especially were actually inclined towards Nazism. And the reason why a lot of these Catholics were inclined to becoming Nazis in many ways was because of two things. When the early Nazis um, began to rise up, the National Society uh, there, they had a big disdain for two primary things, liberalism and communism. And so many Catholics were drawn to these early Nazi movements because they thought, man, they hate what we hate. They hate liberalism and they hate communism. And so, hey, this is the party we should join. What, what little Catholic opposition that, re, that was actually stood against Hitler absolutely collapsed in 1933 when Hitler was given full power over the government of Germany. And a group of German bishops met at Fulda, and there they did something that I consider, and, and they weren't alone in this. There were Protestants who did the same thing as well, so we'll talk about that when we get there. But they did what I believe is the most cowardly thing you could do. Uh, when it seemed, when they knew their neck was on the line, these men withdrew their harsh words against Hitler. Basically, they said, we will not speak bad about Hitler anymore. Uh, one of the most cowardly acts of history, but they weren't alone. So don't, please don't see this as just an attack on the Catholic bishops who did that. Uh, there were many Protestants who went along with it as well, and, very, and few that didn't, men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others who stood against the Nazi regime. We'll talk about them later on. In Rome, Pius XI and his Secretary of State then, because at this point the Vatican was recognized as a sovereign state, Mussolini had made that happen in 1929, and so it had a Secretary of State. Uh, it was a man by the name of Cardinal Bocelli, who was the next, who would be the next Pope in line, Pius XII. And they felt that the time had come that they needed to reach an agreement with Hitler. And within a few months, a concordant was signed by the two parties, which was seen as an interna in international circles as the Nazi regime being given full papal support. This, did, this was not a good look for Pius to write in basically an agreement, a concordant with Hitler saying, hey, you know, you do these things, we'll do these things, we'll help you out. It did not go well in... Um, during this period. Now, to be fair, though, the Pope did not have any idea 
of the evil that would flow from the Nazi regime. Um, they thought, yeah, this guy's angry. He's power hungry. Our previous pope said this is probably what's going to happen when Germany actually gets a little bit of power again. But they had no idea that he was going to do a holocaust. They had no idea. And, and not until the end of the war did the vast majority of the world know that that was the kind of evil. Not even a lot of Germans knew that that was the kind of evil that was happening in a lot of these places. Um, and so it's important that we need to be fair because pious did pretty much what almost every major Western world leader did at this time. And that was, you know what, let's just appease the guy. There were very few people who were willing to trumpet and go, there's something different about this Adolf Hitler. And we better be very weary about him. Instead, we had a world full of Chamberlains rather than Churchills. Churchill saw from the beginning, this guy is a lion. And you don't just keep feeding a lion. He just gets stronger if you do it. Whereas the Chamberlain, Neville Chamberlain, previous saw, hey, we should just appease him. It's all about appeasement. Give him what he wants. Give him the Rhineland. Give him Poland. He'll eventually slow down. And you can't appease a tyrant. Right? Like this was the idea. So nevertheless, it's easy to go at him and say, man, what, how could he have done that? How could he have signed a concordat with uh, Nazi Germany early on? Uh, and the truth of the matter is that was the case for many world leaders um, who really weren't sure what to do with Hitler at this point. Over time, however, he did come out. Once the ideas began to come out of what Nazi Germany was doing, he wrote a full encyclical against. He wrote uh, this, he says, with burning anxiety... He called Nazism a new paganism and accused Hitler of disregarding the Concordat of 1933. And he warned all German Catholics that anti-Semitism was incompatible with Christianity. And so he did take the right stance there at the end, especially as more information came out. Uh, he died in 1939 and with the Nazi regime growing stronger than ever and war pretty much at this point with an absolute certainty coming, uh, the Catholic Church quickly selected the guy who knew the most about foreign affairs. Uh, his former Secretary of State, Cardinal Bocelli, who became Pope Pius Twelfth. The Nazis um, retaliated from the previous Pope's encyclical that had been wrote against them. And they did this by severely launching a, 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 a horrific series of persecutions against Catholic clergy. And they did this in a very interesting way. They took Catholic clergy, brought them before these tribunals, and brought all kinds of false charges against them. Debauchery, homosexuality, these things they launched against them and used that as an opportunity to kill them. The Nazis murdered more than 2,500 monks and priests in Poland alone and sent another 2,500 to concentration camps such as Dachau, um, or Dachau, excuse me. And they, were, they would be met by many of Protestant ministers of Germany as well who would stand against uh, Hitler. And we'll look about uh, those men later on. Pius... Um, tried to take a stance less like his, his um, predecessor and more like this previous predecessor, Benedict. He tried to stay neutral. He wanted to practice papal neutrality. And what he did was he wanted to stay out once again because he didn't know who was going to win the war. Now, I don't know. I just, I, 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 this is where we have to be careful 
because we're not in those men's shoes, but I just know me, and that doesn't seem like a great convicting stance from the man who's supposed to be the leader of the church, uh, to just say, well, we'll see who wins before we make an actual statement on it. Uh, he did, however, condemn the partition uh, of Poland in 1939, when it was pretty much handed over for Germany to do what it wanted. But uh, this papal policy of neutrality was criticized primarily by the U.S. and Britain. The U.S. and Britain thought, you have tons of Catholics in these Eastern European countries, and you should be speaking. Like, more than anybody, you should be the one speaking up for them and being a voice for them to help them bring about small coups and rebellions so that it will weaken Hitler's regime within, and we can come in and fight him without. But the Pope remained silent on these things. He believed that neutrality was the best course of action in a war when the outcome was uncertain. And, uh, yeah. Critics of the papacy argued that much of the silence was actually due to what they believed was a continual anti-Semitism that had dominated the uh, Vatican. Uh, which, there are some absolute warrant to that. Not all of it's true. There have been some popes by far that have had a far greater anti-Semitic um, background and, and, and thinking and teachings, but that has not been everyone. And that's not fair to necessarily label on the church as a whole, uh, primarily because we need to understand who is controlling the area around the Vatican. It's Mussolini. And Mussolini was in line with the Axis powers. He was aligned with Hitler, and so... There wasn't much that he could do without getting ravaged by Mussolini who could just come in very quickly and take control of the Vatican and kill the papacy. And so he saw it as this is me endeavoring to, to maintain the purity and sanctity of the church and the survival of the church. Um, but we definitely can't um, say that it was anti-Semitic because Pius actually did do something covertly. He, he wrote a letter um, to many of the churches in northern Italy. And when Hitler came and occupied northern Italy, he had uh, around 500 Jews be brought into the Vatican to be hidden and kept safely. And what's interesting is during this period, Italian monasteries in the period between 1943 and 1944 actually hid nearly 4,000 Jews from the Nazis who were seeking to deport them to concentration camps. And so this idea of tr just complete anti-Semitism is, is really just a, a faulty charge. I don't think you can hold that uh, in this specific situation. In March of 1944, the Pope secretly had instructed papal legates to hide Jews in Hungary. And some Israeli scholars have estimated that 860,000 European Jews were preserved from death camps through the concealment in church facilities. Now, church facilities is both, they're, they're talking about Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestantism here, that nearly 860,000 European Jews had been preserved from death because the church as a whole here is what it's referring to, both hid them in church facilities and also provided them fake baptismal certificates to say that they were Christians. And so that was one of the ways that they would preserve is they would just show their baptismal certificate. Oh, I'm not a Jew. I'm, here's my baptism certificate. And that was a way to help pre preserve and get these individuals, uh, keep these individuals safe. During this time, Pius was also having to deal with a number of communist takeovers. Albania came under the Soviet rule. Um, Bulgaria came under Soviet rule. Romania came under Soviet rule. And the most... 
absolute biggest blow to Catholicism was when China came under communist rule, under Mao, uh, because Mao absolutely crushed out pretty much all Western missionaries and influence there. And it really, uh, the, the rise of the communist rule in Eastern Europe and within China almost eradicated the missionary work that had been done in those areas by Catholicism. And though much of, of, po, of Pius XII's papacy was tied up in World War II and the communist takeover, he did add some major theological and doctrinal decisions as well during his time as Pope. In 1950, he invoked the last time it's ever been used, what, what is known as ex-cathedra, papal infallibility. He was the last pope to speak uh, as an infallible authority. And the, 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 what the dogma that he declared was the assumption of Mary. He made the Assumption of Mary in 1950 a dogma of the Roman Catholic Church. The Assumption of Mary is the idea that Mary did not die. That she was assumed into heaven like Enoch uh, and Elijah. That they were assumed, she was assumed into heaven, never died. Uh, this was along with the rise of the Immaculate Conception, which had come in the previous century. That she was born without original sin, never was touched by sin. And now she was assumed into heaven. Because she was sinless, she could not die. That's the key there. And so this was the, and it was made a de fide dogma. In other words, in order to be saved in the Catholic Church, you must believe in the bodily assumption of Mary uh, in order to maintain and to be saved within Catholicism. Now, uh, this teaching did not begin in 1950, because I can just see some Catholics all going, oh, it didn't begin. Uh, this teaching had actually kind of fumbled around from Eastern and Western churches beginning, I believe, at the earliest, probably the 7th century, um, especially as the rise of Mariolatry took forth uh, during that kind of 7th and 8th century period. Uh, but it had been kind of fumbled about, it had been taught in and out, but it became an official dogma, has to be believed to be uh, saved by Pius XII in 1950. But that leads us to the most important event that happened in the 20th century, and perhaps the most important event that's happened in the last 250 years of the Catholic Church, and that was Vatican II. Huge um, council that's taking place there, um, and no one would have anticipated the amount of change that came out of Vatican II, primarily because after the death of Pius the Twelfth, they elected a 74-year-old Angelo Roncalli, uh, who took the name Pope John the Twenty-Third. Uh, there on the left, now people, uh, many people thought that the reason they elected this kind of older man was because of how long. Pius XII had been in office, and so they were kind of hoping that they could keep some change and some uh, things there. But nevertheless, this man came in ready to make some big changes. He didn't care how old he was, he was going to make some big stuff. And so after three months after being elected, he calls for this um, ecumenical council, uh, the 21st ever of the Catholic Church, and it was known as Vatican II. It opened on October 11, 1962. And it closed under Pope Paul VI, there on the right, uh, on December 8, 1965. Uh, four future popes all took part in this council, including one who served as its primary theological advisor, a man by the name of Father Joseph Ratzinger, who was known as Pope Benedict, the one right before Pope Francis, the one who just retired and resigned from 
the papacy. Uh, he, his name was uh, Father Ratzinger. He was the primary theological advisor to Vatican II. Vatican II met in four sessions from 62, 1962 to 1965, and it revolutionized the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, though no new dogmas were propagated during this time, or doctrine radically alternated, the council opened the door for many breezes to begin blowing through the Catholic Church. Pope John XXIII described his goal in the council as agior nomento, which means bringing up to date. We're going to bring the church up to date. That was pretty much every church's goal in 1960s and 70s, and especially Protestants in the 80s through the 2000s, was to make our church relevant. And that was the idea. We want to bring the church up to date to meet um, kind of the current culture and climate. And he wanted to uh, have the church um, to be defined as one of both change and open-mindedness. That became the new kind of uh, key word for what the Catholic Church wanted to be known for at the Vatican II was we want to be known as being open-minded, which was totally uh, contrary to what had happened for pretty much all of Catholicism prior to that, but this was a new day, and that's what John XXIII wanted. The Roman Catholic Church was emerging from its anti-modernist isolation that it had remained throughout the 19th and early 20th century. And when Pope John died, the council was briefly suspended, which is required by canon law, but Pope, uh, Pope Paul VI immediately reconvened it because he, he liked the goal that John XXIII had, and he wanted to see it through and, and bring the Catholic Church up to date. One of the most dramatic events, however, of the council came in its final days, when on December 7th, Pope Paul and the Orthodox Patriarch of Constantinople, uh, Patriarch Athenagoras, issued simultaneously in both Rome and Istanbul, basically the, cap the capitals of the Eastern Church and the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they issued a joint declaration uh, which put out a list of regrets over the past actions that led to the Great Schism of 1054. In other words, they both publicly repented for saying we should have never broke up. Now what's interesting is they didn't, they didn't actually get back together. They didn't like say, okay, we're going to get back to one church. However, they did regret that that had happened and they thought that this could usher in a new period of ecumenical dialogue between Catholicism and Orthodoxy. Uh, they believed that those two churches could be coming and, and need to get closer and closer together while recognizing that there are still differences but regretting some of the things that were done to lead to the schism in 1054. Some of the other major changes that came out of Vatican II uh, reshaped the face of Catholicism. There was a new openness to biblical scholarship. Up to this point, the Latin Vulgate was it, man. It, that's it. There is no other scripture outside of the Latin Vulgate. That is the only one. And now they're actually having textual critics and things like that who are studying the Bible and coming up with new... Like today, there's the New Catholic Bible and all these other Bibles that are a part of this. Uh, there was an expansive revisionism to traditional liturgy. Um, there was a stronger emphasis on ecumenism. Rather than being the we're the one true church mentality, it was more like, hey, you know, we... Yeah, they're Protestants and we don't agree, but they're not heretics anymore. They're, they're our estranged brothers, is what the Protestants began to be known as. And then they uh, took a more engaging view toward, uh, towards trying to reach the modern world. And so basically from the 1970s forward, a huge insurgence happened 
with the, the rise of Catholic apologists. Uh, Tim Staples and these other guys that became central to Catholic answers and stuff like that. Um, EWTN comes out during this period. I think it's the Eternal Word, Word, Word Television Network. I think that's what it stands for. I'm not sure. But that becomes out and that starts propagating Catholicism on the Broadway uh, broadcast. Um, and even today, that is still the continual goal with people like Trent Horn, Bishop Barron, and some of these other well-known kind of Catholic apologists who are central to trying to engage the modern world. The laity uh, was also given a much greater voice than it had at any other point in Catholicism. The role of bishops was given greater prominence. Uh, the list of abandoned books were finally abolished. So basically up until uh, 1965, uh, there was still that list of abandoned books that you couldn't read in the Catholic Church, but that went away uh, with Vatican II as well. Catholic scholars were actually allowed to publish their works freely without having to have it proved and blessed off by the Catholic hierarchy, um, which has led to some very interesting uh, things from Catholic uh, historians and stuff like that that has been published. Um, and the most important thing that happened was the Mass could be said in the common vernacular. Prior to this, Every priest did all of the Mass, the Eucharist, the entire service in Latin. You don't speak English. Uh, that's not, that's not a, a proper language. That's not a God-honoring language. You must do it in the Latin. But this went away with Vatican II. And you can imagine very quickly that Latin became a pretty much dead language after that because people wanted to hear what was actually being said in the Mass in their period of worship. There also was a huge ecumenical outlook that looked beyond simply orthodoxy. Uh, prior to Vatican II, Catholics defined ecumenism as trying to reach out to Christians who had left Catholicism or who were Protestants or Eastern Orthodoxy and to persuade them that they were the ones who had broke unity and therefore they needed to come home to the mother church. That was their ideas of ecumenism prior to Vatican II. But the new form of ecumenism emphasized the need to make changes within. It actually says we need to do some reforming. We need to do some things different. And we need to start considering other viewpoints as well. They consider Jews, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants no longer to be called heretics, but as, quote, separated brethren. Hindus, Buddhists, and other such faiths were to be regarded with severe reverence because, quote, these religions often reflect a ray of truth, end quote. Muslims were to be regarded with esteem since they shared the Christian belief of monotheism and regarded Jesus and Abraham as prophets. So that was enough to give them at least high esteem. They saw Jesus as a man and just a prophet. It, it, it concluded by asserting the reality that all bear the image of God and thus any discrimination against any person or group on the basis of color, race, or religion was wrong. Now, I absolutely agree with any discrimination on a person on the basis of color and race is absolutely wrong. Now, what does the word discriminate actually mean? It's a word that gets thrown around a lot, but it just means discriminatos. It means to make a choice between two things. We discriminate all day, every day, on basic decisions. And when you're talking about someone's religion, you're talking about something which they make a personal decision to follow and go after. 
You're not talking about color of skin or sexuality. Things like that. I mean, this is something that if you're a gender, you're male or female, you're black or white, uh, you can't change that. That's the way the Lord made you. And so you should never discriminate against anyone that way. But when you're talking about what do you mean by discriminate when someone is holding to an opposing worldview, um, this becomes a great hang-up for much of Catholicism. Is how far do we engage without breaking this idea of Vatican II and not discriminating. And so it's very important when we talk about discrimination that we understand what words actually mean before we just throw them out liberally. Um, we discriminate every day. We make decisions and choices. And when a person is making something a choice to follow something or to believe something, you have every right to discriminate and make uh, statements against that. Not rude. or uh, That's just unbiblical to make some kind of slanderous statement. But to, to address the issue is something that we must do as Christians and stand against that. The idea that the Catholic Church was the true church remained, that it, was the, it had the successor of Peter, the Pope, the Pope, and therefore it should remain. But nevertheless, there were many elements of sanctification and truth, it said, that were found outside of Catholicism. And so this was a huge opening door to start saying, there's other truth out there than just what we have. Whereas prior to this, the Catholic Church was seen as we are the pillar of truth, right? That's the scripture they use. We are the pillar of truth, as Paul taught. And so that's who we are. But now they're saying, no, that there is truth and elements of it in other areas as well. Uh, a big thing that happened during this time was known as the ECT movement. Evangel evangelicals and Catholics together. Uh, this was a big book put out during this time with a Ford by Pat Robertson uh, called A House United. And this was the idea was to bring evangelicals and Catholics together because as society grew more secular, it pushed religious groups closer together. And so if you're at abortion rallies, anti-abortion rallies, you start seeing Catholics out there with you. And so evangelicals start going, hey, well, what are... What, what, what we have going on here? Maybe there's some area that we agree on. And that's kind of what ECT did. ECT kind of creates this ecumenical outreach that says, we know that there's differences, but those are secondary differences. We're all, uh, we're, we're battling the same fight. You know, we're fighting against abortion. We're fighting against pornography. We're fighting against the general decline of morals in America. And so evangelicals and Catholics start kind of coming together saying, you know, we know there's disagreements. We'll keep our mouths shut about that. And we'll just focus on beating the battles that we both dislike. So abortion, pornography, a general decline of moral values and other things. Um, they also hoped, especially the American church at this time, with this ecumenical movement, uh, uh, organization between evangelicals and Catholics, they hoped that this would set an example that would actually end some of the religious wars that were still happening in Ireland and in South America at this time. Because the Protestants and Catholics have been having bloody wars in Ireland for as long as we can uh, remember. And this reality was to look at that and say, hey, there is a way we can work together. And hopefully that would end those religious wars. And in some ways it kind of did, but in other ways it definitely did not. Because the issues within uh, the issues with the evangelicals and the Catholics in Ireland is far more cultural than it is even doctrinal. It's more of like, you know, we, we, it's like the Hatfield and McCoys more than it is doctrinal. You know, we have to fight you. We're not even sure why we're doing it anymore, but it's just the right thing to do. 
Um, the most prominent aspect of this document was that it recognized evangelicals and Catholics as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this was huge. This was a huge statement to say that Catholics and evangelicals are both brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, they are not separated. They are both under the Lordship of Jesus. They just have um, secondary issues. Now, there was a great debate done, and if you have time to look it up, uh, between Douglas Wilson and James White on are Catholics our brothers in the faith. Um, very well done. Uh, it's, um, they, uh, Doug Wilson is arguing for they are. Um, uh, James White is arguing that they're still, that the distinction on the gospel is too vast for them to still be accepted in church. Like the gospel is the issue at stake, and until Rome capitulates on the gospel, uh, there, can no, there cannot be unity on that matter. So really good debate uh, if you're interested in diving deeper into the discussion on that. Um, the notable signatories uh, of this kind of evangelical Catholic agreement were men like Bill Bright, Mark Knoll, one of my heroes, um, but very much soft on this issue, uh, was J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer was a big person who believed in the brotherhood of evangelicals and Catholics um, because he was an Anglican, and Anglicans can't make up their mind for anything. And that's the, that's the joke for that. Uh, and then Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson was pretty much the kind of the big evangelical who put his stamp on this movement. Uh, the Catholics were Cardinal John O'Connor and Archbishop Francis Stafford. These were all the kind of notable signatories of this. Now this sparked a huge debate, which continues to today, um, where basically, uh, should, uh, did this really, are we really brothers and sisters in the faith? What's interesting is in the statement that ECT drafted together, it was almost overwhelmingly pro-Protestant. Uh, in what it declared. For instance, this is a section that both parties agreed to. Quote, We understand that what we here affirm is in agreement with what the Reformation tradition have meant by justification by faith alone, or also known as sola fide, that was signed by Roman Catholics. Now, this is an interesting thing. Because in 1999, the Catholics had already signed a document with Lutherans and that created this, uh, this, this idea called a document on the doctrine of justification by faith. Where they, they argued and said, we believe in justification by faith alone as put forth by Luther. Now that's Roman Catholics who are signing that. To which if that's what they're saying, hey man, welcome to the team. Um, the problem comes down to this. <laughs> I actually wrote a, a blog article uh, about a year back on why the Reformation still matters. And I wrote about the five solas. And with that, I had a Catholic actually um, comment on that. And he said, I agree with four out of the five solas, except sola scriptura. Right? That's the big thing because they need to have the church as the authority of, of interpretation over the Bible rather than the Bible over the church. Uh, which is just fascinating to me that here's a man saying, I believe in sola gratia, that's grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. I agree with all those things. The issue comes down to language. What do you mean by grace? What do you mean by faith? Anybody can say, when we get to the cults and the occult, we'll see this around. You can, a lot of people adopt these terms. But when you actually dig in to say, well, what do you mean by grace? What they mean is sacramentalism. 
We get grace by partaking of the Eucharist, by the Mass, by doing our confession, by doing repentance. It's all grace, but it's how we receive it. One sees grace as sacramental, the other sees it as free, given by God alone. And so, and it comes directly to the individual by the indwelling of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that applies the grace, whereas in the Catholic Church, the sacraments is that which applies the grace. So very different. It's important to understand that many would say, yeah, I agree with salvation by faith alone. Well, what do you mean by that? It's clear that we really understand that. Uh, let's quickly, um, some theological dialogues that happened during this period. Um, Paul VI um, really began to dialogue with Anglicanism and called Anglicanism, uh, the Anglican Church, our beloved sister church. And so you can already start seeing that this idea of heretics and we're separated, those walls are slowly starting to get tore down. Um, and we're, we're basically starting to get lumped all together. And, and, and what we're going to see when we get to look, to look forward in the future, that's going to continue happening. Uh, when they talk about Christianity, all of these groups are being lumped in together now. Uh, there isn't going to be the kind of distinctions. And so it's important that we know what we believe in order that we can maintain those, that, that distinction in the future. However, what's interesting is they called the Anglican Church our, uh, our beloved sister church, but that relationship went south very quickly when after the sexual revolution in the 60s, what happened with Anglicanism? It started op uh, openly um, ordaining women to the priesthood. Uh, Anglicanism started allowing permissive teaching on abortion. And ultimately, even today, allows openly gay ministers to be ordained into the church. And with that, Catholicism said, well, we better, get, we better back up off the Anglican train. And so that happened pretty quick when Anglicanism and, and, Anglicanism and Episcopalianism are pretty much one and the same here. Uh, and and Catholic, Catholicism had to really kind of jump off that bandwagon quick. Uh, and good for them. Good for them on, on that front. Um, in 2009, Pope Benedict... Um, the, the 16th, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, announced that Anglican priests could actually join the Catholic Church and serve as priests, remain married, and maintain certain elements of, Angli uh, of their Anglican liturgy. Because at this point, a lot of the conservative Anglicans and Episcopalians were running. They were fleeing out of Anglicanism. And Catholic Church was saying, come on home, baby. You know, that just, and they were already over the Tiber, so it was, just, it was an easy transition. But this caused a great issue. Now you have married priests. While the Catholic Church is saying, you still can't be married if you're actually coming into seminary. Though. So you can imagine a Catholic priest going, well, my, in my parish I serve with another priest who's married and has a family. And I can't. So you can see where that's going to create a tension. And I think a tension that I think is going to lead into the future of um, the celibate priesthood actually going out. I think they're going to allow priests to marry in the next decade to two decades. I would not be shocked by that. Interesting enough, though, that if you come in as an Anglican priest and you're married, you can be a married priest, but you can never elevate to bishop. They will not still allow for married bishops. So if you're not a married priest, that is one thing that you got going for you. Say, oh, at least I can go up the ranks a bit uh, compared to the other guys. Um, the... the this was the, the Lutheran. Uh, Lutheranism has often been in dialogue with Catholicism. In 1999, like I said earlier, they, they, they issued the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification by Faith, which affirmed this, quote, 
Because justification is by grace alone in faith in Christ's saving work and not because of any merit on our part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit who renews our heart, equipping and calls us to good works, end quote. Amen, man. Now, I've yet to meet a Catholic who can say that or illustrate it, but that was one of the dialogues that came out of the 1999 Joint Declaration of Faith. Lutheranism and the World Methodist Council have adopted that Joint Declaration as statements of faith. Uh... That leads to the rise of social thought and probably the most beloved Pope, at least during this century, of John Paul II. Pope John Paul II. Uh, in May 1931, Pope Pius had issued the encyclical Quadragismo Anno, which meant 40 years, and ushered in a new era of social Catholic teaching. Pius cautioned with, against, uh, against unrestrained capitalism and totalitarian governments, and that's becoming a more and more of a thing. In, after the 1960s, uh, especially, the Catholic Church starts becoming more and more critical of capitalism. It starts seeing capitalism as kind of, it creates needy people. There's too many rich people in America that you can't be helping needy people out. That was kind of the idea. So it starts seeing uh, really kind of negative views towards some of the unrestrained capitalism, but also kind of the totalitarian communism of the day. But the biggest issue that rose up was the rise of the social movements in the 60s. The rise of abortion in the 70s with Roe v. Wade, um, contraceptives and the use of that, um, and then primarily the, the, the growing and, and slow accept, accepting of homosexuality, but more than anything, the rise of the women's movement, the women's liberalism movement. And there was one man who stood up and said, we will not ordain women to the church. And it was John Paul II. John Paul II, uh, in his Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, fully and firmly established that men alone could be ordained to the priesthood. He held the second longest pontificate in the history of the Catholic Church. He, he was the uh, Pope from 1978 to 2005. And he shattered the conventional image of the Pope. He was the first non-Italian Pope to be elected since 1522. He was from Poland. That's where he was, was born. And what made him so endearing to the Catholic world was he was willing to learn multiple languages. So he went to these nations and actually spoke in multiple languages without a translator. And he actually traveled. He visited over a hundred different countries during his time as Pope. And that really endeared him to the people. He was known as kind of the people's Pope. He also had no issue speaking on political matters. That was something else. Uh, but remember, this is an area where it's kind of the Cold War area, era. And what made John Paul II was especially favorable in America was what was happening in America. The moral majority. You had Ronald Reagan. It was America versus uh, the Soviet Union. You had Rocky IV where he crushes Ivan Drago. I mean, it's just all about America at this point, right? And so... Him kind of coming out and speaking on against communism was very much, um, uh, really won him lots of favor and was central in causing many of those uh, Catholics in those Eastern European countries underneath the Soviet rule to really begin rising up. And it really was one of the major things that led to the fall of the Soviet Union. But it also put a target on John Paul II's back. And he had an assassination attempt that almost killed him. It almost took his life, and it was put forward by the Soviet Union. They had actually hired uh, a Turkish terrorist to go and uh, try to assassinate him. It nearly killed him. Uh, but what happened is probably one of the most moving moments in television history. Now television's starting to get really big. Everyone's pretty much got a television now in the 80s. 
And what he does is he goes in the actual prison and offers forgiveness to the man again. And that was a big sentimental hallmark moment that you know, was really big and started putting the papacy kind of on the map. John Paul II was vital in growing the ecumenism of the Catholic Church. He was the first pope to visit a Lutheran church uh, and was central in reaching out to the Jewish community. He was the first pope to enter a synagogue. Um, I would argue ever, because I don't believe the early Jews were popes, but they would say, obviously, since Peter, and maybe the who they call the second or third pope, which was Linus or Anacletus. Those are who the Roman Catholic Church consider as the second and third uh, popes of the church. Uh, but he was the first pope to enter a Jewish synagogue since then, they would say, but I think ever, because I, those men were not popes. Um, he was also the first pope to ever enter a mosque, though he did remain an outspoken critic of militant Islam. Part of his ecumenical endeavors was to publicly repent for the trials against Galileo. He repented for its, the church's involvement in the Atlantic slave trade, uh, for the silence of the church during the Holocaust. He apologized for the execution of John Huss um, and for the crusader attack against Constantinople in 1204. And though he was extremely popular, John Paul II's relationship with America was at times estranged, especially in the 21st century, because John Paul II was radically opposed to the Iraqi war. He was opposed to the, the invasion in Iraq, and he condemned what he saw was the dangerous, unmitigated capitalism of America that did not seek to care for the needy. And, shockingly, and to this I agree with him on, at least for a part of it, he referred to America in the 21st century as the culture of death, marked by abortion, euthanasia, and the death penalty, which he was opposed to the death penalty. Now, I would put the death penalty outside of that when properly used. But nevertheless, I agree, America is a culture of death with its emphasis on abortion um, and euthanasia and other things like that, which put him at odds with the American Catholic Church, which has always been more progressive usually than what the popes were in Rome. He died on April 2nd, 2005 and was given the title John Paul uh, the Great. Real quickly, we'll finish up here. Pope Benedict XVI and Catholic Challenges. Uh, Benedict, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, succeeded John Paul II at 78 years of age and he was the first German pope uh, pope from Germany who had been elected in almost 400 years. He was originally an academic powerhouse, uh, but one of the issues was that uh, he, he lost a lot of favor because he had no issues speaking out on issues he cared about. He had no issues speaking out against what he saw as the evils of Islam. He, he said that Muhammad was a man who only taught evil and spread his faith by sword rather than truth. And so he was a radical opponent of um, Islam, and that didn't win him any favors with the kind of more progressive Roman Catholic Church. Um, and he believed that the greatest enemy of the Catholic Church was the dictatorship of relativism. That's what he called it. And in many ways, he, he was spot on uh, in that regard. But the greatest thing that hit Benedict was the bombshell of scandals regarding sexual abuse in the Catholic Church with priests. It got hit out with the, the release of the John Jay Report released in 2009. It identified 10,667 alleged cases of sexual abuse of a minor against 4,392 priests between the years of 1950 to 2002. 6,700 of those almost 11,000 were substantiated as being true. 
Another 1,000 were unsubstantiated, and the remaining 33 to 3,400 were left never investigated because the priest had already died. 252. Now, just remember, 6,700 of those were substantiated. Only 252 priests were convicted. That's a big issue. The overwhelming number of the victims of the sexual abuse scandals were young males, 73% which were under the age of 14. Similar studies were done in Ireland as well and turned up similar grotesque findings. This was a, uh, a graph of the John Jay report. And the sad part, and this was the big deal, is when was the peak of the cases? It happened between 1975 and 1990. And who was the Pope during that period? the beloved John Paul II. And that put a huge thing. Now, when he died, uh, Benedict immediately put him forward to be put forward for sainthood. This put a huge pause on it. Now, you can say, well, he may have not known and things like that, but when you are the leader of that church, to have that number of cases be brought forth and the alleged, and when we saw what happened with the moving around of priests to other parishes, not being dealt with by the, law, the legal system and just being shifted around where they would commit these other acts, that falls on you as the head of that organization and the leader. And so that was a big issue. When they did studies in Ireland for the Catholic Church there, they found very similar uh, grotesque findings as well of, of major issues with sexual abuse. Many argue that it was the Catholic practice of what is known as creme solicitonis, which is the idea that, uh, that when a priest um, is accused of either homosexuality, pedophilia, or zoophilia, that they are required to go undergo complete confidentiality on internal ecclesiastical proceedings. It cannot be spoken of. Whatever happens in the tribune must be said. And underneath creme solicitanus in the church, if you speak about those issues to any outside organization, it subjects you to excommunication in the church. And many believe that it was this practice is what kept propagating this kind of evil in the church. Ratzinger tried to do everything he could uh, to apologize and defend the church against this ghastly scandal, but it took its toll on him. The U.S. diocese alone in 2009 had to pay more than $2.6 billion in abuse-related costs, and many dioceses, Catholic dioceses in the United States, were forced to close because of bankruptcy. This has led to both a growing cry for many to not only ordain married men, but also for many to start saying you need to ordain women. Uh, that is usually the response to both of those things. And that leads us to the final, and we'll close here, uh, Pope Francis and the future of Catholicism. In 2013, due to the toll of the scandals, in a shocking event, Pope Benedict resigned from the papacy, and he was the first to do so since Gregory XII in 1415. On March 13, 2013, Jorge Bergoglio of Argentina was proclaimed as Pope Francis I. He was the 266th Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. And he chose his name as homage to St. Francis of Assisi, uh, which is not shocking because Bergoglio was actually the first Jesuit priest ever brought into the papacy, ever elected into the papacy. And Francis of Assisi is the founder of the Jesuits. And so he took uh, that name Pope Francis. He was also the first pope ever from South America, and that is why he is often referred to as the Pontiff of First, because he's the first 
uh, Jesuit, and he is the first from South America. He began his career as a Jesuit priest in Argentina, and shocking to some who might hear this now, he was one of the strongest theological conservatives in South America. Extremely theologically conservative in the beginning uh, of his um, of his uh, time. He was primarily conservative on social issues, abortion, homosexuality. He saw those things as absolute evil and was had no issue speaking on them uh, in Argentina where he was a priest. Over the time, though, Pope Francis has grown more progressive uh, than many originally figured he would be. He's far more progressive than Ratzinger was before him and John Paul II before him. And he has consistently made statements that at least display an idea of inclusivism uh, at, at a bare minimum, that pretty much anyone who has a sincere faith in anything uh, the, the Lord's death will purchase them. They will be saved. But he's also said things that would make you almost think he's a universalist this time as well, where basically there is no hell. That people, I mean, uh, I, I just remember the poor, the poor boy um, who came to him and asked him, you know, his father had committed suicide, his father was an avowed atheist, and he asked him, has my father gone to hell? Now, time out, that's a hard question for anyone to be asked. Let's just give the question. But there was one way he could have answered that, and that is, you know what? God is just, and if you trust in Jesus and believe on Him, that's the only way to know for certain if we go to heaven. But God is just, and He is good. And he could have left it at that. He didn't have to go. But instead, he asked the boy, well, did your father let you be baptized? And he said, well, yeah, my father let me be baptized. He said, well, then your father was a good man, and the Lord will welcome him into heaven. Now, that's the wrong answer. Now this young boy has a total skewed view of what it means to, to go to heaven, to be in Christ, to have that assurance. And so these ideas have kind of revealed his further progressivism. And in 2010, he gave an address to bishops where he argued that the church should support gay civil unions, but not gay marriage or adoption. So we shouldn't say, we shouldn't call it marriage, but yeah, they can be civilly united. They can have civil unions and be together and have that. We just don't believe in the marriage title. But they can be civil. They can be married in everything but title, basically. And he was still, still remained against gay adoption. And as we've seen with many popes, new personal history and past convictions is no definitive predicator of future decisions. So, what is to close? What does is, what is Catholicism future look like? It represents more than 17% of the world population, and perhaps the greatest issue in Catholicism is growing the growing nominalism that it faces in Europe and North and South America. And that is the idea that the vast majority of especially young people today who are Catholic are just because that's how they were born. And I'm just, I'm just Catholic. They're not Catholic by conviction, they're Catholic by birth, basically. And that's the greatest issue that it's dealing with is a lot of people are not Catholic by conviction. It also has suffered from a great deficiency of priests. And I think the primary issue is because the last, a large majority of men could say, well, I would just rather go to seminary and study to be a Catholic apologist and still be allowed to have a wife and kids rather than go into the priesthood and never be able to have those things. Like, why would I, I do that? I, I want to be married. And I think that's why you're going to see more than anything a big push for married priests probably within the next decade, if not sooner. Catholic teachers and apologists are going to continually be further essential in their hope for future growth. Priestly celibacy, I believe, will be removed. They will continue to provide ecumenical outreach 
And I think that Catholic dogmatism, especially those de fide beliefs, the Assumption of Mary um, and other things like that, papal infallibility, I think those things are going to be kind of pushed further and further to the sidelines to try and create a mere Christianity to say we're all one. Ultimately, what will happen with the Catholic Church is hard to be saying, but I, I wouldn't be shocked if there's also a bit of a resurgence within conservative Catholicism, primarily because of how much young people today especially are trying to find some bit of antiquity. Just as we saw so many young men starting to turn to Eastern Orthodoxy, I think you're going to see a lot of young men turning to Catholicism, especially with how superficial evangelicalism has become in the past two decades. And if evangelicalism doesn't get back to preaching the Word of God consistently and edifying its church on things like church history, apologetics, and things like that, I think that evangelicalism is going to lose a lot of people to Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy because they provide a semblance of antiquity and something that looks like authority compared to what is seen in most evangelical churches today. Let's close there. Father God, um, just thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much for these studies. We just pray that we have, um, we've been faithful here tonight in this study. I thank you for all who have been sitting here patiently in this lengthy uh, lecture. But God, you're so good, and we, just, we thank you. We pray that where there's areas of discussion that can be had with those who are Roman Catholic, that we will be able to have them. But God, more than anything, that we will never capitulate on the issues that matter. The gospel matters because the gospel alone saves. And we cannot fall short there. We can't get that wrong. Um, Lord, so I continue to pray that you will just teach us to be faithful in reaching those who are Roman Catholic, to show them the truth of the gospel, to be able to call them back to the faith once and for all delivered. Uh, and to not be distracted by the smells, wells, and uh, smells, bells, and whistles, but God, to come back to truth and to know that which is from the, the Bible and the Bible alone, the Scripture alone that reveals the glory of salvation in the fullness of the gospel. So we thank you, we praise you, and we just ask that you be with all this week. And we say these things in the name of Christ. Amen.